hey, by the way, uh, Chris mm. might as well start this. Consider us uh, live, I'll, I suppose. I'll set it off. Okay. Yeah. Welcome, yeah. everybody, to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience at a very special early time because I am on the East Coast. I am recording from Vermont um, in New England, uh, enjoying the foliage. But here we are. It is Wednesday, October 13th, and we are here to talk about all things new and exciting in the world of tech and all that stuff. Anyways, let's go. Um, so can I start off with, uh, two mea culpas, um, from today's show, one of which is neither here nor there, but the other one might lead us to our first topic. And, yeah. and Rafa, if you wanted to say hi, you are a speaker, so you're, you're free to say hi if you want real quick. Yeah. Hi. Um, hey, Rafa. Uh, it's Rafe, by the way. Rafe, Rafe. Okay, well, I guess what? Look. Okay, I was going <laughs> to right. defer to you, Brian. You're the historian. Well, so way back in 2005, um, I did a startup called Who to Talk To, which was a job search social network kind of oh. experiment thing. Free LinkedIn. Uh, well, no. Um, I, I did a different startup called Where Are the Jobs, which launched a month <laughs> after LinkedIn uh, oh, in 2003. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway... Um, the first boy, what, where would you have been writing for then? Anyway, what um, year was that? 2005. 2005. Yeah. How close was I then? Here, I'm going to find it. Hold on. I was at CNET at the time. I was going to say CNET. I think CNET. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Rafe Needle, who to talk to? I, I, I checked it recently and it was on. Yes, who to talk to is not a job board on CNET. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So right, and I remember emailing you after you wrote up, you wrote it up, and because it was literally like the first time I'd ever tried to get press for something, and I was like, oh my god, thank you for spreading the word about. It. And you're like, you wrote back, and you're just like, that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, I was a bit of a dick. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, Rafe, I, I returned the favor by never knowing your name. <laughs> oh, it's all good. It's all good. Okay, yeah, back. yeah, that might have been the one that inspired me to create a spreadsheet of when the big crash came of all the people who were losing their jobs. I I started this little spreadsheet and I had like hundreds and hundreds of contributors of uh, uh, people who were losing jobs and people who were hiring jobs. It lasted for a couple of months. It was it was a sad time. By the way, I I'm remembering it wrong because the the date on this article is November twenty eighth, two thousand six. So okay, um, yeah. Anyway. Um, so right, as Chris said, origin stories. Um, <clears throat> another thing, talk about getting wrong today on the show. I mentioned that G four is back. Yeah, and I kept referring to it as like the the show where you uh, you know got your love of tech or whatever. Because I was remembering uh, when it was Tech TV when like Leo right. Laporte was on it, and yeah. I knew that it. It became G four, but I didn't realize that it is it. It became mostly a gaming site ah. uh, or gaming gaming channel, I suppose. Yep. yep. Um, so, just in case anyone was wondering uh, why I kept referring it to it as a tech site, even though everything about it is gaming, um, there was a time, just not the time. Yeah. Most people might remember. Right. It was it was just a rename and rebranding and became G four, and then uh, went away eight years ago because it became what was that the. Um, what did I say it was? Some sort of men's fashion channel oh, or something. Um, like Esquire, that. was it? Esquire or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, pivot left. All right. So, um, my second mea culpa might be uh, lead into what w one thing interesting to talk about is um, I did the story about um, how uh, 
Stripe is hiring a um, crypto team, a crypto team, and a very small one. Um, but right, but also it occurred to me as I was writing that up that you know I like to pride myself on connecting the dots, and I realized I had it. it <laughs> Stripe, we know, is, as we've said on the, the World Cup of Entrepreneurs thing, like they're trying to own money. Um, and it, I, how did it never dawn on me that they have never been a player in crypto? Like, I, you know, like as soon as I wrote that up, I was like, oh my God, in all these ways that, like, you know, Stripe is maybe the biggest unicorn in the land and, um, and it does payments and all this stuff. But what is crypto? But in theory, payments and money and things like that. And so it just kind of blew my mind that it had never occurred to me before that, oh my God, yeah, every time we talk about crypto and things, Stripe is kind of not a player in that space until now, I guess. I mean, it's kind of true about like Visa and MasterCard, you know, although Visa, of course, bought their first NFT. But those guys, it just seemed like they were not going to enter into the space for some reason. And I wonder if, you know, uh, we're not exactly like, you know, well, I work for FinTech now, but in terms of understanding the FinTech space, whether Stripe couldn't get close to that stuff because of the regulations, because of securities, because of all the things that are just ambiguous or arbitrary or not figured out right now. And given all the licenses right. that go into that, Stripe just, you know, was like, eh, we're not going to deal with that right now. It's like if they're if they're killing it in their lane right now, the why lane, take on why take on that risk? Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If like suddenly like they get audited, you know, because they are touching crypto, then that's not good for their their business. That's a good, excellent point. Which then, if now we've we've spun this thing around 360 degrees, then is it interesting that now they're going to dip their toe in the water? I wonder uh, I, I, what they're I, seeing. My guess, and I, I have no insider information, just you know, reading the tea leaves, is that there is a sufficient momentum of uh, their international customers who are probably asking for processing of crypto and crypto payments, You know, whether it's what's going on in um, El Salvador or elsewhere. Um, it just feels like you know, money in the, in the U.S. is just different than everywhere else because we're very well banked. We, you know, have you know good credit card systems and et cetera. Um, and it, it just isn't the case universally globally. So if Stripe, you know, has that international presence, then and footprint, they're going to want to do what their customers are asking them to do. And I got to imagine it got to like a fever pitch where it's like, okay, we have to have a crypto solution or some answer because this is clearly happening faster than we're able to to say no, no, sorry, we'll deal with that later. I, I think I've made that point on the show before that the last 18 months, one of the things that has finally gotten traction for crypto is that every bank, their clients are asking for it. Yes. So, so they, they Venmo, PayPal, yeah, like all yeah. these digital online you know currencies are all moving in that direction. And crypto is just like another offering. So it sort of just, I think, makes sense that if all of those you know payment providers um, are coming online and offering it, that eventually merchants are going to be like, Hey, uh, this is what my customers have. They're selling these NFTs for, you know, boatloads of <laughs> well, no, I, I, I'm not even this. saying, I'm not even saying that I'm saying that if you're a fidelity or a bank of America or a visa or whoever, like everybody, even the startups, you know, everybody wants to be that super app that you do all of your financial stuff in. So I think people woke up over the last year and were like, so wait, we're trying to have you do everything inside your account with us, except we're going to still allow you to go over there and do your crypto with that Coinbase, right? And so like, that's sort of an untenable position 
going forward, just from the simple fact that if people are living inside some other financial app, like then you're kind of losing your, your base game if you're a bank or whatever. It, it could be. I don't know. I mean, like some of Stripe stuff is just so rudimentary, so basic. Like, for example, their iOS app, like it sucks. It's really bad. And I think it's because they expect other third parties to really build the experience on top of it. Like they really want to be like the rails. They want to, they don't want to build the trains. And so in this case, they just need to have the underpinnings of how to support crypto and their customers will take care of the details and the implementation. So that's, uh, again, I'm thinking about this from a platform design perspective, as opposed to right, right. all the consumer stuff into some Stripe experience. Right. Well, because, I mean, Stripe, as far as I can tell, has no aspirations to be a consumer brand. Like Correct. they kind of want, it, they always well, want to be literally the want to be the, the magnetic background. strip yeah. on yeah. the internet yeah. for all payments. Yeah. So um, interesting in, in the sense that if Stripe's whole thing is APIs all the way down, but theoretically crypto is, has always been programmable money. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering where they, um, where they see their angle that they can fit in there. But I'm, you, know, you know, if anybody can figure it out, it'll be them. Yeah. Rafe, you got any uh, thoughts on this? Uh, on, <laughs> on, you put me on the spot. I haven't podcasted in 20 years. Um, I, on, on why Stripe the, would go into crypto. Or, or um, be hiring for well, that now. No, no, I mean, I mean, obviously, everybody, all the, everybody needs to do those transactions. I could give you more reasons for why they wouldn't, because of the regulatory right. disaster that it is and is going to be. Um, I, my bet is they stayed out of it as long as they possibly could. Yeah, no, that that was my thesis. Yeah, <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. Well, it sounds like Rafe, you might be a bit of a crypto skeptic, which is totally fine. Uh, this safe space here. I'm just um, uh, you're you're wondering if um, it's it's even a, a decent business to get in if you've got a safe business on the side to begin with. Like maybe you don't even want to touch it. Well, I mean, look if there's if there's financial instruments being transferred and you're in the financial business, then you would be foolish to uh, avoid those transactions um, unless there's a giant cost of doing those transactions. And I, I'm not a, a skeptic on the value of crypto. I just think that um, the regulations are going to be unbelievably onerous for the next couple of years. I was listening to uh, Preet Bharara's podcast. He was interviewing somebody on this uh, from the All Things D conference. I forget his name. And it was just like, and he basically his his message was, you know, uh, we're coming for you, crypto. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah. because it's valuable, that's why, right? Yep, yep. Another point I've made before is you go to the banks because that's where the money is, and the government <laughs> goes after power because they're in the power business. So, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um. So. Somewhat tangentially, uh, we should acknowledge, Chris, you and I haven't actually podcasted together in over three weeks, even though you know we had some bonus episodes in the bag, and then there was that one that I didn't I wasn't here for. That's true. Um, so you and I haven't talked. I so I might be wrong about this, but um I get the sense, having not talked to you very much in the last three weeks, mm-hmm. have you been completely NFT pilled at this point? <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, how do I put this? There's so much to learn 
and so much to discover and so much grift and so much fraud and so much excitement and so much creativity. And so in some ways there's, there's a resurgence of that, that, 2005 energy, you know, when I first uh, got out to Silicon Valley and the dot-com bubble had burst and the people who were just really excited about building and about the future and about learning and sharing and doing were there. So there are elements of that that I'm, I guess, you know, re-experiencing. And so in that sense, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And what I'm experiencing is in some ways complete overwhelm. Because when I sort of showed up and, you know, the web and the social web was just getting started, there was literally like a thousand people maybe in the world who were really working on this stuff. Some of those folks are actually in this call right now. And now there are tens of thousands of people just, you know, on Twitter talking about NFTs. And the same is true if you head over to Discord or you head over to Reddit or you head over to all these different places. Now, it may still be a relatively small number of people in terms of the overall global population or the four to four or five billion people who are connected to the internet, but it's still way more people and way more activity than I think I've ever experienced. And the number of projects that are dropping that are similar or related or have you know interesting little nuances. like If you think about I guess maybe the number or speed of social apps that happened from the period of, let's say, 2006 to 2008 or nine, when people were really building on like the Facebook Connect API and stuff like that, I would say that the cadence has accelerated by 10 to 50 fold. So yeah, in that sense, I don't know that I feel pilled, but I, I do feel pelted. And I'm trying to make sense of where this goes and what this is and what are the, the useful things that will come out of this that are not just kind of faddish and new and kind of like, oh, let's like try all the things and all the whack job stuff. I mean, you think about like TV in the 90s and like MTV, like there was a period of experimentation where nothing kind of made sense and everything was like a psychedelic, like, you know, yeah. nightmare. We're sort of in that phase, I think, with crypto and NFTs where enough people have enough of the basic building blocks that they can build some things, try it out it might not work out and they move on to like the next thing. And there's no kind of socialization of those learnings. It's just kind of go, 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 do, 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 build, 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 launch, launch, launch. And so I guess that's the the phase that I'm observing. Yeah. Because if you think about it, what was it? 2017 was that year where there was ICOs, initial coin offerings all over the place. Right. Um, and then you never hear about that anymore. And then there was, you know, that sort of 18 month period where, you know, Bitcoin was under $5,000 and like there was a huge crash and everything. And I'm sure a lot of these altcoins um, went away and things like that. But it is even in NFTs, I think I said this on the show, um, you know, we had that huge or arrival of NFTs on the scene. And what was it? February and March of this year. And then it went away and I almost did, you know, segments that's like, okay, I guess NFTs are over. And then it came roaring back. And then, you know, for all we know between now and, and, you know, Thanksgiving, even we could have another crash where it's like, NFTs are dead, man. You know, I think the thing Um, that's um, a very open-ended question right now is like, there's a lot of like belief. There's a lot of shilling. There's a lot of kind of just weird commercial activity with, you know, selling the JPEGs. But then there's the whole membership and belonging and long-term building of sort of participatory environments and games. And those are the things that I think are the most interesting, the most unproven, and the richest I don't know, sort of space to dig in, but it's hard to keep track of all of it. I mean, I feel like I'm in 40 or 50 discords and like the noise is just 
it's, 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 it's enormous, but you know that something is going to, or at least I have a sense that something is, is going to come out of this that does persist in some way. The question is, will it still stay interesting once like we move past FOMO as a mechanism for driving participation? And in some ways, I think, you know, there will be some long-term things that come out of it, but I don't know exactly what they look like, um, which I suppose, you know, if you want to get into this, we, we can, I mean, this kind of leads into the metaverse and right, what, right. What that's that what I was going to say. Like, look, look like. Um, okay. Product man. Um, what is, uh, what is your definition and vision of the metaverse? And, and let me, let, let me begin by saying that the reason that this ties into NFTs is that that's a lot of the, um, the, the smoke and the fire around yeah. this NFT. The value of NFTs right now is that if you buy these avatars that are ones of one, and then 10 years from now, you're tooling around the metaverse in your one of one Corvette and you're, you're driving behind your one of one avatar. And like these are the idea is, is that a lot of these NFTs will eventually plug into whatever game or whatever larger metaverse there is. And hopefully because it would be you know uh, interoperable, and there would be some form of of standards that you know you could transfer th- things around and things like that. That okay, the people that have gotten these bored apes now um, will be big pimping with the <laughs> with the real original stuff. You know, yeah. I mean, I think so. There's an interesting thought experiment, I guess, that I've sort of been you know running in the back of my, my mind, which is to think about Ready Player One and to try to figure out what aspects of that world, which you know is of course um, a very clear depiction of a metaverse, and what could be enabled by current gen technologies or Web three technologies. You know, as as you just said, all of the different you know skins or outfits or characters that people could play or the weapons that they are able to get, those could all be identified as, as NFTs or tracked as NFTs. And so they have value in the game and you can acquire them through either in-game currency or tokens or coins or crypto. Um, and because, and this is the major change, you know, you, you talk about like interoperability, but all that needs to sort of exist, at least for the short term, is the ability to register these NFTs on a world readable ledger like the, the Ethereum, you know, blockchain or something along those lines. And then any of these metaverse platforms that are built up as kind of these mm, environments that you enter into can look up whatever is in your wallet. And if it understands what those things are, or can, you know, create a skin for you or a weapon that's based on that stuff, then it can give you that as a portable item between these different metaverses. And so there's actually a great deal of economic activity as well as social activity that can occur as a result of uh, that type of system. And that is something that really didn't exist except within single, um, you know, like a world of Warcraft or something universes that were owned by a single studio or a single um, company. And so for example, like the Nintendo metaverse may have a bunch of like Nintendo branded characters, but nothing from like, you know, star Wars or star Trek or something or from Marvel um, because maybe those are owned by a different company. Whereas in the metaverse that we're talking about, if it is um, connected and unified, then you could have different characters from different universes all coming together and all the rights would be managed through smart contracts or something like that. You, uh, you mentioned ready player one and I have to do another mea culpa, which is I've never read that nor have I watched the movie. Cause every time I've, You're every fired. time I've, 
every time I've opened up the book uh-huh. and both times I tried to start the movie, it just rubbed me the wrong way from page one, minute one. I no I way. should plow through. Uh, well, let's not get into it because it's just okay. it's okay. pure. Like it was it was just too cute for me and like too. I I don't know. I can you read the. It? Um, I could, I suppose, but the, the reason I want to move on is because the point that I want to make is uh-huh. the thing that I'm super familiar with okay. is, of course, uh, Snow Crash. Of course. Um, and Snow Crash, one of the things that is right there from the very beginning when they're describing the metaverse in, in Snow Crash is, you know, they they jack in, as they used to say from the Matrix days, and or, 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 or literally from earliest cyberpunk stuff. And, and um they go to these different parts of like this city and they mention that, well, this part of the metaverse was, was the earliest built. These, right. You know, right. Right. Or the early they got that. in early. Yeah. And so now they're trillionaires or whatever, because they were the first homesteaders in this thing. Um, and so like, that's sort of also baked into the idea of the metaverse that is instantly, I feel like this is, I don't know. Like that's a no. Um, mm, go ahead. Yeah, because so you got to imagine when Neil Stevenson was writing Snow Crash, the 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 metaphors that he had to conjure to make these concepts relatable to normal people who weren't living in com- the computer space. And I forget when that novel was written, but it was like you know sort of pre-internet or around the ninety-two or ninety-three, I think. Yeah, yeah exactly. So yeah. Like super super early. These concepts were so you know sort of far in the future and yet kind of built around almost like a Google earth style approach to geography. And it doesn't really feel like that's the way that the metaverse is shaping up. Like for, for example, um, you know, the company I, I work for Republic, we um, have something called Republic realm, which sells virtual real estate as NFTs. And you'll be able to buy and sell that real estate as, you know, assets and, and so forth. And the thing that's interesting is like, I don't know that, I mean, yes, buying that real estate and getting that early and holding it may result in, you know, those properties, you know, going up in value of some sort, but it, I mean, maybe if you're just talking about like the rendering quality or the number of polygons or things like that, like having sort of like a plot of land on a metaverse that is infinite, I don't think there is the same kind of like, okay, that's the center of town sort of experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, in the sense that, I mean, we have seen something similar happen with things like World of Warcraft, even things like Second Life and stuff like that. And and it exists to this day, which, by the way, we if you want a quick tangent, how familiar are you with um, Axie Infinity? Uh, somewhat. You know, I've read Packy's stuff on it. Um, okay, so I, I'm going to also share a long read uh, this weekend about it. But um, So when you say that it's not going to feel like a, a second life or a world of Warcraft where there's like tangible landscape is, um, I'm, I'm saying that the, like his model, Stevenson's model was based on scarcity in terms of the amount of like available land. And so being located in certain geographic coordinates was advantageous and economically lucrative. I'm suggesting that there can be an infinite number of infinite spaces that, you know, maybe, I don't know, having the real estate that's close to a spawn point or something where all the new characters drop in, that could be valuable. But anyway, I suppose maybe that's... I'm thing. saying... There's not one. Uh, no, I'm saying it's it's not land, land yes. it's chronology. I see. Like, it is, about, it, it is about being the first and the earliest and the, you know what I mean? And, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, so, so it... 
it does feel like a land grab to me, even though it's not land and it's not proximate, but it is sort of that getting in there first. And I wonder, you know, bringing it back to the conversations about being there for the beginning of Web 2.0 and, um, you know, people have been, um, people have seen the pattern over and over again over the last 25 years where it's like, oh man, those first people that got into blogging or the first people that got on Twitter or the first people that were in this, or if I had just bought Bitcoin in 2013 and like, right. so I feel like what everybody's doing is like, we've all been trained to be like, all right, whatever the next big thing is, if yeah. I can just be 30 seconds earlier, yeah, that so, accrues okay. so much I more value to me. I, I don't think the same mechanism applies. And I say that as someone who is, you know, early on a lot of these things and like gets the username and like that was the behavior. Uh, it doesn't feel like it works out the same way this time around. Um, and I say that. So, so let me, let me try to stack three different concepts. So on the one hand, we have the, that concept of like the metaverse, you know, which is sort of, you know, virtual or digital real estate, a place where people have presence um, and persistence and it's always on, never turns off. Then you've got a place like the snow crash, um, you know, metaverse, which feels, and I guess I'm, I'm sort of merging the ready player one metaverse with the snow crash metaverse in that in either or both of these circumstances, you're always both online and offline. And you do sometimes, you know, jack in and become fully immersed in the digital metaverse experience. But then there are aspects of augmented reality that you carry with you where you're in partial touch with the metaverse. Like in some ways, I think about Discord as a kind of metaverse. It's a very text heavy metaverse for now. But let, are- let me interrupt you real quick to, sure. to throw some ideas at it. If this is along the lines you're thinking, so that when you're in that Discord, if you can bring your bored ape um, JPEG with you to, sure. to, to prove that you're an OG. If in five years from now we're walking around with AR glasses, and as you walk down the street and you look at somebody on the street and they're wearing that yes, board ape, and totally. you're like, oh, "Oh my god, that's a..." So what you're saying, the concept that you're suggesting is that it's not real estate so much as it's, it, and this is right up your alley, man. <laughs> it's more forms of identity mm-hmm. and ownership that that so follow imagine, you around. Like, think about, I don't know yeah. if you're familiar with like the low source uh, attribute on image tags. Uh, a little bit. Yeah. It's not, it's not that big a deal, but I think it's a useful uh, metaphor in the sense of, or, or like a progressive optimized JPEG that loads in sort of a low res version and then adds more pixels over time to create more clarity. I kind of get the sense that that's what this is going to be like over the next several years. So it isn't just about, I mean, yes, maybe it is staking your claim on a board ape and having, you know, one of 888 or one of 10,000 mechaverse um, NFTs but it's about how you assemble those different parts as an identity over time and how you assert those identities in different spaces and how those spaces or metaverses allow you to present those mm, artifacts to demonstrate either your superiority or your seniority or your participation or as participation trophies. So for example, one way to solve this uh, for for Twitter, and I know Twitter is is at least working on this or thinking about it, and TikTok is working on NFTs, is the ability to, let's say, uh, connect an NFT to your profile photo. And so that profile photo could be a bored ape. And when I, let's say, click on or right-click on your profile photo or long press or whatever, I can actually look up the source of that NFT on Etherscan and see when you got it, how much you got it for, which collection it's from. And as you're saying, you know, maybe in the augmented reality world, I'm walking down the street and I see someone across the way and they've got a number of these um, 
similar NFTs that I have that's instantly showing affinity or group membership um, that otherwise would be very difficult to sort of ascertain quickly. Now, you know, we'll leave out the privacy stuff for now. That is how this could become interesting. And we can experiment and explore these different ideas in the digital metaverse context, as opposed to immediately bringing it into the augmented reality context. We're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot literally cannot live or at least work without it. 1Password. 1Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. 1Password secures every sign-in to save you time and money, any device, any time. 1Password lets you securely switch between iPhone, Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using 1Password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the 1Password bandwagon. Because right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ride. That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride. Onepassword.com slash ride. Want a better way to simplify your business finances across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? If so, Ramp could be a complete game changer. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spend. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Ramp's accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so you don't have to. You'll never have to chase down a receipt again and your employees will no longer spend hours submitting expense reports. The time you'll save each month on employee expenses will allow you to close your books eight times faster. Ramp's also saves you money. Businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. Ramp is easy to use. Get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash techmeme. Ramp.com slash techmeme. R-A-M-P dot com slash techmeme. One of the things that is definitely different right now, even from like 2017, there was a, and I'm sure there's, there's data to prove this out, but um, back in like the 2017 ICO days, like there wasn't a ton or at least compared to today of VC money chasing this stuff, maybe because they didn't have to, because you could do an ICO and raise all the money you needed. Um, but um, there is just a ton of like, you know, now that I'm sadly in these um, in, investing channels and circles and discords and, and, and listservs and things like that, um, half the deals are a new kind of, um, you know, wallet or, a, a, you know, a put, put real estate on the blockchain or, or, you know, function like an NFT and things like that. That's everything that's, that's half the energy right now hmm. in the investing space. Well, so, so, so um, this, this is out of your ride home funds work, right? 
Right, 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 right. Um, so, actually so as a, as paying investor, attention I'm actively. Curious, like, that's it. What are you, what are you thinking or seeing? Like, as you're like noticing this, this kind of deal flow, like one, do you think it's unique to you and your position in it? Or is that where all the energy is kind of going? This is okay. So this is what I'm saying. Um, these, and, and if anybody's listening and wants to let me into more these sort of like angel communities and angel channels Mm -hmm. where people, because especially people running syndicates and, and smaller angels and stuff like everybody's small enough that they can't do deals on their own. So they're all working together, essentially syndicates, working with syndicates, working with angels, working with small funds and stuff. Um, so I swear to God, if you looked, if I, if I made a spreadsheet of like the hundred deals that I've seen on that channel, just in the last week, Hmm. I'd say half of them are in are crypto related. Um, and maybe half of that half is NFT related, um, but it's it's all of the promise of of things like DAOs and and smart contracts and things like that. Like those are the things that people are executing on right now. Those are the things that people are writing checks for right now. And well, and this is what I'm what I was going to say was the third part, which is the DAO part. All right. So we talked about the the digital metaverse. We've talked about the identity piece. We've talked about kind of like the you know progressive JPEG rationalization over time. The DAO piece is the part that I think is the least understood and might be the most aligned in terms of new incentive models within the web ecosystem, which is to say that it's one thing to, you know, do an NFT drop and get a bunch of people to, you know, buy first editions or whatever, but it's the ongoing long-term kind of design of your community participation model that will determine whether or not your DAO and your NFTs actually one maintain value and two develop into something meaningful over time. And the design of tokenomics and like behavioral economics and social structures uh, and voting systems that work and that are inclusive and that provide kind of scaffolding for the newest members all the way into like the deepest core members feels like a new approach to, you know, building and understanding social software. And that's going to be, I think, what determines the makeup of uh, a healthier, more vibrant metaverse ecosystem. Because the players who don't get that right or just kind of like take a pump and dump kind of like approach, you know, they may make a bunch of money, but I feel like people are going to get bored of that within six months to a year. Um, one more question for you on this, and then we should probably solicit other topics from folks. So if people, if you've got, if you've got questions, raise your hand now and we'll, we'll switch to a different topic. But one of the things that, and I've asked this several times of of several different people Everything lives on different chains, and when we're talking about things like interoperability and stuff like that, like if it's ever going to work in the end, either there has to, all the chains have to work together in some functional way, or one or two or three are going to have to win for specific use cases, um, and and that's a lot of the debate that I see going on right now is like you know the dominance of of ethereum being proved out there was a, like a bloomberg piece about that this week and right. and then other people like no 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 there's these there's cardano and and what's uh um solana, solana. solana. Mm-hmm. yeah and all these and like you know so I, I when i see things like that i still feel like we're so far away because like the actual land grab battling hasn't even begun yet <laughs> you know much less have the du- dust settled so that like we know the lay of the land and 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 can start building or like like what what's your take on that in terms of um does that matter 
that will have to, you can't have one NFT on one chain and then a different NFT on another chain and which is the more respected and stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? I do. Um, my sense is that it may or may not matter. It, tends, it, it depends on the project. It depends on the, the token. It depends on the side chain and it depends on kind of what the plans for the community are. I know that there are a number of projects that are either attempting to or are working on joining mainnet and then creating a combat- compatibility layer um, between whatever side chain they have and uh, Ethereum. And so at the very least, you can look up the data on a public ledger. And as long as you can reference it in that way, I feel like you can sort of achieve some of the same, I don't know, sort of you know goals that you're, you're trying to propose. It's not clear to me that um, it's a foregone conclusion that only three will win. You know, one way to think about this, I suppose... And you know, maybe I'm getting outside of my skis here, but in the same way that a lot of tech companies went to China and just assumed that they would compete in a lot of the same ways that they did, they did in on the U.S. market, I feel like showing up in the crypto world and expecting to compete in the same way and win in the same way that Web 2.0 companies won is setting yourself up for failure. You know, it's like you've, you're a football player and you step on like the basketball, you know, court and you you spike the ball and instantly you're kicked out. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's sort of like the machinery doesn't work the same way that it did before because people are solving for a different set of problems in response to the stuff that they didn't like about Web 2.0 and that era of, of apps. So I, I, I guess I, I wouldn't use the same lens that you'd use to evaluate a conventional web two kind of, you know, company or, or platform for thinking about crypto projects in particular. Um, I did see a hand raise and then it went away, but seriously, people, um, <laughs> I want to, I want, I want to talk about something else. So, so ask about something completely out of left field. Um, that's that's not the stuff that we yeah, usually what, what, talk what about. Conversation or what topics are we are we missing or haven't covered? Recently? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. That, and you and you know why I'm doing this? Tell me why. Because because the obvious thing to talk about is Facebook. And once again, as you and I have talked about offline, like God, I don't want to talk about Facebook. <laughs> I, I was about to pivot to that and bring it up, um, which I, I know you so, run away from. So, Chris. We we didn't do a show last week, and it was kind of because I was burned out for other things, and I was like, you know, we can afford to take a week off. Yeah. Um, but also, I said to Chris offline, I was like, the only thing that we have to talk about right now is Facebook stuff, and it's just so exhausting to me that like, please please don't so make me do this. Let me, this let, me, week. let me give you one thought about this, yeah, which is yeah, completely yeah. relevant to what we just talked about, and. I, I, I don't have a feeling one way or another about it, except to say, huh, which is that the entire conversation right now about Facebook and even about what Francis Hogan, you know, has brought up and about the need to make these algorithms, I don't know, more transparent and et cetera and so forth. And even section 230, I feel like that conversation is really looking at the social web circa 2016 to 2017. Like we're still litigating like the, the Trump election. And everything that we just talked about with regards to crypto and the metaverse, in some ways, obviate whatever controls might be put in place by these types of you know, rules or adjustments or changes. You know, how does Section 230 apply to the metaverse? How does it apply to augmented reality? Or not just Section 230, but like how would changing or improving algorithmic transparency, like what determines what uh, objects are shown to you in a 3D space? How do you even bring that to Capitol Hill or to Congress and say, okay, we're going to figure out what stuff to put in front of you to guide you in this virtual world? 
Like those are not even conversations that we're able to have right now because the concepts are still somewhat further afield. But that is where this stuff is going next. That's where the younger generation is growing up. Like, for example, I've been noticing that there's a lot of new ads and, um, I don't know, sponsored content or something showing up on Google Maps. But the same thing is going to be true on Snap Map and even the Instagram map is now adding a bunch of new features and stuff. So those types of environments, which are not feed-based, right, which are not based on chronology, but maybe based on proximity, are not part of the conversation about optimizing content and deciding what to show people when there are millions of different data points that could be shown. What do you do when you move into an augmented reality environment inside of your home? What determines which objects appear first as priority objects versus anything else? So I guess the reason why this conversation is on the one hand, very you know interesting and time-bound with regards to you know, this, this Facebook conversation is that probably over the next, you know, five to 10 years, these conversations are going to seem relatively quaint to the types of, um, I don't know, things that we're gonna have to defend against and the ways in which we're gonna have to teach and educate people about the risks that are out there, uh, in the metaverse, which are going to be totally different than everything that we've experienced in the last five to 10 years of technology. A couple of things real quick about that is number one, of course, um, you know, Zuck is, talking about the metaverse all the time now. Um, oh my God. So uh, just, and, just a quick aside, like I yeah. watched on my, my flight over here, the June 20, uh, maybe it was June, 2021 Facebook connect event. Um, and I, I hadn't watched the full thing in its entirety before. And it was all about, sorry, I have to like dig into this just for a second. It was all about the metaverse. It was all about Oculus. It was, I mean, they previewed their Luxottica glasses and they're like, we're going, you know, full into augmented reality. We're not there yet, but you know, and they, they launched those, you know, right on cue. So they are moving ahead. The fact that Mike Shretford is no longer CTO at Facebook and Boz has been put in place. And Boz is a big metaverse guy means the company is pivoting hard towards the metaverse and towards Roblox and um, Fortnite and to all those virtual environments where Zuck sees the next generation growing up and having social experiences where you just idle in these 3D spaces. And it's not about the hardware. So I think we're drastically undercovering this because reporters don't really spend time in the metaverse. And so they don't report on it. They report on old shit that like they're familiar with, like being obsoleted by social media. Like that's what reporters love to talk about. And so that's what they're fixated on. And that's what is taking up all the oxygen in the room. But Facebook is very clearly moving away from that whole world to a world where there are no reporters. And I think that's something that we should really be paying attention to. Okay. You had a second point. I kind of forget what it was, but I I guess it was, it was kind of along the lines of, well, that's why they bought Oculus and like, they're trying to, you know, the, the, the last, the last major acquisition Zuck could get in before the door was shut on him doing acquisitions sort of gives him a, a toe, a toehold in, in that if, if in theory that works. Um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, what was the other thing I was going to say about that? Uh, Oh, so we also have the next Facebook connect, uh, I don't know if it's the developer event or whatever coming up, I think later this month. So next week is going to be a, a really, <laughs> yes. yes. I'm tired of events. <laughs> well, next week's going to be a doozy. And then, uh, I think it's the end of the month is the Facebook connect event. And that one I think is going to be a really big deal because it's going to, man, I don't know this, this period, like the last three or four weeks where Facebook has just been kind of in the, the gutter and it's just been one terrible thing after another. I mean, 
I can't imagine what it's like to like be in the leadership team or to just be like trudging through. I mean, there's got to, it's got to be like fires all over the place, but it's like, let's just make it to this event and we'll be able to like lay out the future and talk about where this goes and how this all comes together. And it just, you know, when I think about like the portal event that Zuck kind of, you know, did, that was the horrible product launch. And he was kind of like, yeah, whatever, like, here's this stupid thing that we worked on. But then he talked about the metaverse at the end of like, he's so fired up about it. I just, I, I can't ignore that relative to the other leaders in the space. Like, you know, Tim cook still doing the same song and dance year after year, same thing, just increment the, the iPhone product number launch the MacBook pro MX ones next week. Great. Sundar, you know, being like, let's not let Google fall into a thousand different fiefdoms or whatever. Advertising still works. Um, did I get that right? Sundar and, um, Satya, Satya's at Microsoft. Anyways, yes, yeah. you know, like Zuck seems to be, he has found his next magnum opus and it is literally larger than anything the Romans could have built. And so when you're building a civilization, if you were the first to build the civilization in the metaverse, that is a very juicy target. And I think that's that's what he sees. Yeah, but I, <laughs> uh, okay. another way to look at it would be um, he's sort of grasping at straws. You know, there was a big push into crypto, and that still may come to fruition, that whole project, but that seems to have sputtered a little bit and I wouldn't be surprised at all if we never heard much about it again. Um, okay. Um, DM. DM. Yes. What did it used to be called? Whatever. Um, yeah. okay. Listen, yeah. uh, Dan, the yogurt intern, was that what it was? Now he's, he's now it's Squire Daniel. Dan, uh, you're yes. invited to come on stage. Oh, hello. Hello. Hey, uh, Am I supposed to say something in particular? Or no, it, 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 you raised your hand. If you have a question, please. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. I guess you guys, you guys were like very adamant about not talking about Facebook. But there is this like Facebook cryptocurrency thing they tried for a while, right? Like, there you go. Or whatever. Exactly. It's Libra and now it's DM or something. Right, right, right. Yeah, have you guys heard anything about that? I saw like an article like a month or so ago saying they were in trouble with the government and I just never hear about it at all. I, okay, I so yeah. so I, I feel okay, like go, go. within the last two or three weeks, um, I listened to a podcast with I believe it was David Marcus, who is heading up that project. And David Marcus's DNA in here is very important. So first, he was an exec at PayPal. He went on to lead, I don't know if it was first messenger, but he was head of messenger, worked a lot on bots, which is how I was introduced to him. And then he went over into the crypto world because payments is a huge driver of use for messenger products. And messenger is one of the key wedges against iMessage and Apple's forays into social networking, um, namely via SharePlay, which is in iOS 15. Anyways, that's a little bit besides the point, but it tells you where David Marcus is coming from when he's working on this stuff. And so what I understand in terms of their approach with DM at this point is that because of all the scrutiny and because of all the haterade and because of all the ways in which people are skeptical of anything that Facebook does or touches, and especially if Facebook is coming for the central bank, of course, everyone is like putting up the shields and blocking them from moving forward. So what I understand, at least in terms of his telling of it, is that he's doing everything by the book. He is working closely with regulators. He is trying to make the, the DM currency completely uh, of, of, of high repute relative to all other crypto projects. Um, and so one that maybe is why it's very quiet. So there's not a lot of extra scrutiny and, you know, they're not promoting this thing before it's built and they're not moving fast. They're, they're not, that's what I was going to say. They're not, they're, yeah, not, they're not doing, doing their, their usual playbook. playbook. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're, 
showing a more maybe level-headed approach. You know, there's a lot of people that come from Facebook and go work at Coinbase or go work at Stripe. So there's a lot of this kind of, you know, genetic soup that's moving around the valley in these fintech spaces. And so when you find an opportunity to build something that could be impactful, you go towards it. And I say that because, you know, you may see people who had previously worked at Facebook show up at Stripe or people who worked at Coinbase show up at Facebook and work on this thing. So there's a lot of that talent that moves around with a lot of similar ideas. And if those ideas get stuck in one place, those folks who worked on it will move to another to try to keep it going. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot more of DM show up in subtle contexts, whether it is Messenger or whether it's WhatsApp. Um as a way of sending remittances or getting more users in unbanked places to join Facebook in a more subtle, you know, context, similar to a, a PayPal or a Venmo or cash app. Yeah. What I had heard, and this might be complete hearsay is that it is, it was very much a, they sort of announced this thing like they usually do. They had the playbook that they usually have yep. and they hit a brick wall that they had never encountered before, which was <laughs> yes. government governments ar- around the world. No governments That's around true. the world yeah, yeah. were like hell to the no. Yeah. And, and to the point where it's like, this could be so, uh, this could piss off governments around the world so much that this could, you know, let me, let me you know, step on, that on their other businesses. Because yeah, it occurs ahead. to me that if you are a regulator or if you are in another government someplace else and, you know, you, you don't know a lot about like, you know, the tech companies in Silicon Valley, but you've heard of Facebook and you know, Facebook has four or 5 billion users. And most of those people are in your country. Suddenly the idea of Facebook touching each of those users with money or currency suddenly is getting in between a relationship that used to be owned entirely by the government. And so that usurps why 100%. Right. And I think I even made that point when, when this first all surfaced. So anyway, what I've heard anecdotally is that that's why it's gone silent is that they realized a, our normal playbook is not going to work. And then B, one of the things is, is that they were, they were essentially, as I understood it, um, proposing originally a stable coin like thing that would basically usurp again, the role of sovereign governments to create sovereign monetary systems and things like that. It was almost like it was almost too nakedly yeah, a power grab like exactly, that. Right. And so, but in a, in a way that wasn't really what they wanted. No. Um, and so they can still achieve their ends by scaling it back and having it be like maybe a, a PayPal, as you would understand it from the early 2000s, but like with more social juice and things like that. And that can still achieve what well, I is think probably as, as their say, ultimate end. Like, whether you're doing messaging and you're sending text or you're doing messaging and you're sending currency, like the, the mechanisms are actually nearly identical. So once you have those rails and you have people communicating, the logical sort of next step is to bring money into it. And the, as I understand it, and this may or may not be, you know, the truthful reason or motivation for this is that the costs for processing those exchanges of currency cross, you know, border was so high that by the time the currency was exchanged, there was almost like nothing left for the people that were sending, you know, let's say three or $4 because of the high fees that were incurred through those transactions. And so Facebook's like, look, we can do this basically for free if we have our own, you know, currency in this, in this realm. And that's, that was that's my understanding of why they went in that direction because of the adoption that they had for messenger and messenger payments. Um, Matt Wild, um, I am going to invite you to speak as well. And and if you have a question that's completely unrelated to what we were just talking about, that's fine. Or yep. if you want to pile on something we've already talked about, shoot, Matt. 
Uh, I jumped in late, so sorry if you already talked about this. No worries. But uh, jumping back to crypto. Um, yep. So <laughs> I was listening to, I think the founder of Solana was on a podcast with Jason Calacanis or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he asked a variant of this question. Uh, one value that many of these uh, blockchain founders uh, present is that they want their technology to be censorship resistant. Mm. Uh, and one downside of that is that we're starting to see like more and more fun scams pop up in the crypto space. I, is there a way to square that circle or are we going to just do what we seem to always do and find a centralized store of trust? Do you, do you have an example of, of one of these scams? Uh, I mean, for any given NFT, they'll, uh, like they'll launch and then someone will complain that there's a rug pull and they've actually had technical difficulties. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they in fact have just run off with the money and sometimes they have not. Um, I guess if your question is like, is there a solution to this problem? I would say no. I would say the the solution, you know, is like the problem in a way. Like one of the the conversations that I was having recently was about how um, so much of what happened in the original depression um, resulted in financial regulations, which control so much of how the market and the stock market work to prevent things like rug pulls. And so we are sort of reliving, like essentially we are two or three generations removed from the generation that grew up and had direct relations with those rules when they were instantiated and created. And so we've sort of forgotten why they're there and we're angry that they're there when we try to, you know, do certain, you know, financial maneuvers. And so suddenly, you know, once the the fraudsters show up again and they realize that, you know, crypto doesn't have the same rules, uh, at least currently applied in a way that um, is robust um, because there's so much anonymity in the space. Um, you end up with people who get taken advantage of, and you end up with these rug pulls, and that's the system working as some intended to work. So, will there be Can more I- trustworthy contexts to transact crypto? Uh, maybe, but I, I worry that we or those who created the system were responding to uh, different threats and a different moment. But we've been here before. Brian? Can I make a point on that? Yeah. In the sense that, and I'm not speaking to anybody specifically here, but when I see the debates about in, in crypto circles about things like, oh, the government's going to come in and regulate and things like this, regulation sometimes is things like, oh, you can't pollute a river, or oh, um, you know, when people talk about breaking up companies because they're too big or too powerful, this is like the heavy hand of regulation. But another form of regulation is the idea and this there weren't laws about this at one point that if you are a, a an executive at a company you can't insider trade right yeah. and 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 so one of the one of the functions of good markets of good capitalism is you set up a system where it's a level playing field where theoretically everybody is competing with the same sort of tools, the same sort of knowledge in theory, obviously this is not functional, but, um, so when what made me think of this was saying, um, you know, can, I think that the crypto maximalists believe that, well, we can do everything decentralized. We can do, we can, we can program it. That's what the, the, the concept of programmable money is and DAOs and things like this is we can make enough rules that are baked into the system that um, that you don't need someone centralized or from above to come in and say, okay, no insider trading. 
And if you do insider trade, here are the, but you still, but even if that is, I, first of all, I don't see that we're anywhere close to that functionally happening yet. And even if you did, you still need some sort of a mechanism to enforce. There's a thing about regulation that is enforceability. There's one thing about contracts, and if it's built in to the blockchain that these contracts are, you know, it's a, it's a binary thing, yes or no, either this threshold has been passed, this thing has been proven, X, Y, and Z. But you still have the problem of enforcement, and so I don't know necessarily how crypto and decentralizing gets around that. I haven't heard an argument that 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 makes makes me convinced on that angle. I, again, I mean, so many so many things, so many human systems have a certain amount of overall complexity, and that complexity is either just you know innate to the structure um, or sort of emerges over time as the system sort of self-learns or adapts or evolves or realizes ways in which it's vulnerable. And so it creates adjustments to prevent that type of vulnerability going forward into the future. But newcomers sort of ignore the past and, you know, want to do things over again or haven't learned the lessons from the past or they weren't told or, or um, brought down for, for them to learn in a, in a, in a way that was relatable. And so they, they, I don't know, I'm, I'm getting very abstract, but move around it. Um, to your point, the desire to move fast, the desire to not have to ask permission from regulators to do things, the desire to not have to check in with the parents, you know, to go out, you know, at night or something is sort of uh, a constant, I don't know, behavioral norm within, I think, the human species. Like there's just this desire to have that free will. The problem, though, is that some of these systems are at least intended or set up to prevent disaster, to prevent damage, to prevent uh, one person impinging on other people's rights to sort of create some safety. Well, and, and the point that I was trying to underline is to have a functioning capitalistic market. Like people forget that like capitalism cannot function without rules. Capitalism is not a pure libertarian ideal. Um, it, it does require frameworks. Otherwise, um, you don't have, you can't have creativity or creative destruction unless there are guardrails in place to prevent fraud. That's yep. the, that's the bottom line. Well, but again, it's also like once you've been burned a number of times or once you are a person who has had the rug pulled from you, then you be become passionate about putting in those enforcement mechanisms. But I feel like we're so early in the cycle that enough of those things haven't happened where we have figured out the patterns to prevent against this type of abuse. You know, some people might say, oh, it's just a matter of transparency and the fact that it's all open source or you can go and expect the contracts to see how they will function and what they will do. Well, that requires a level of education and literacy in what those contracts do and how they work. And that is a very small uh, overall percentage of our population in general. So on the one hand, we have a legal system, which is quite opaque, even though it's transparent. You know, you can read the laws and they don't make a whole lot of sense in terms of human terms. You can do the same thing with smart contracts and making sense of them may also be quite opaque, even though they are transparent. So there are these distortions or these information advantages that continue to persist and exist that will lead to um, people having you know bad experiences or the rug pulled from them or just people you know picking up with the crypto that they brought in from uh, an, an NFT drop or a sale and they'll just like leave with their 2.7 million dollars and never be heard from again because everyone is using their 
you know, fake board apes avatar, which isn't verified yet. And you can pretend to be someone from the crypto community and pull off an elaborate, you know, heist because, because of the, the embrace of anonymity and pseudonymity in a way that really hasn't, uh, had money attached to it before. And so I guess what I wonder is if, and I actually have been asking questions about this cause I was in the Mechaverse drop the other day and I was in there for the raffle and, you know, saw the whole thing get sold out in a matter of minutes. And when I was in the discord, the sort of anger and vitriol and all the people complaining about how clearly like this thing didn't work and, you know, they got, they got robbed and I don't know, all this stuff. It's so hard to tell like what is real and what's not. Um, it just seems like you almost have to set aside, I don't know, 20 to 30% for breakage or for fraud. If you're going to play mm. in this game, because you can't prevent against all the ways in which people will figure out how to social engineer, um, access, you know, I, I, for Shit. example, a number of people I, I heard in the metaverse, mechaverse world were setting up multiple accounts to be able to mint multiple mechas, which are now, uh, you know, 10 to $12,000 each, uh, so that in the drop, they, you know, got a whole bunch of value out of it and they took away from the community. They tried to do some things to prevent that behavior, but clearly that behavior happened quite a bit. Um, what's the term for in, in physical retail? Is it breakage for yeah. what's the term when someone for steals stuff, it's breakage. F- stealing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so you just uh, assume that, you, that some portion yeah. of your products are going to be stolen and the cost of enforcement, let's say to hire security or bring in police is too high relative to the value of the good. So they'll just like, you know, assume that some percentage will be stolen. Now, if you allow that to go indefinitely and there is no, you know, kind of, let's say, it's just like the inverse of random re- or um, variable rewards, variable enforcement. Then people will obviously take advantage of that and they'll just walk in the store and steal everything. But if you bring in surveillance like the Amazon stores and stuff like that, it may uh, inhibit some behaviors, especially if you create a sense of you know community or commonality or connectedness in the uh, economic activity. But heretofore, heretofore, that's somewhat been missing from some of these environments. That's why the DAO thing I think is, is important. If you feel connected to a space and you have voting shares over the future of the thing, you know, it's like I say, like when you build social software, if you don't create a space where people, you know, kind of come through and feel some ownership and take some pride in the place, you're going to have people come through and pee in the corner and just like leave because they're like, this isn't my place. Like, I don't care. So uh, designing these social behaviors and behavioral economics, I think is, is, is why I keep harping on this as being another piece of the metaverse. That's really, really important to get right. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse. That laptop might belong to a bad actor you Using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. Selling a little 
or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ka-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify transformed ResumeWriters.com from the spaghetti code backend I cobbled together in college to the world-class commerce platform it sits on today. And Shopify can do the same for your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ride, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash ride now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ride. Um, maybe one last topic to, to end with, because, sure. you know, we'll put this out on Saturday, um, you know, as we mentioned, everybody's having a friggin' event next week, which is <laughs> good for you. It's your business. Awesome for me. Yeah. Um, but, um, I've been joking for six months about how all I care about is a new MacBook pro. And, um, now that it's, it's really real and it's happening. Mm-hmm. I thought, I thought I was kind of overdoing the joke or whatever, but man, people have been coming out of the woodwork and, and, and have been revealing that they've been like me, like they haven't updated their laptop in yeah. five years. <laughs> and, like the fan, like, uh, I literally have like jet blasts coming out of the back of my like MacBook Pro. I've, I've posted a photo of it. I, I have melted part of my aluminum stand. My my fan runs so hot. And and we've all been sitting on our hands because of the stupid goddamn keyboards. And then the stupid <laughs> like it, 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 the keyboard was is one thing. I mean that is just insanity that no one will ever believe we, we had to live through that. <laughs> right. Um, but the other thing is if, and, and I still, you know, I hope I'm, my fingers are crossed, but I still am worried that this isn't going to come through, but if we're going to get some ports back, like, mm, right. mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> again, I keep saying it's finally the, the, the ghost of Johnny Ive has been exercised. Like, Oh wait, you're going to give me more than one port. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to maybe give me an SD card reader back. You're going to make, I don't know that I need an HDMI, but it, look, give it to me. Give me anything. Give me a functional thing. Cause it is a pro machine for God's sake. Right. So we, pros need these things m- more than just one port. That's also your power port. Indeed. By the way, I, I tried to pin my tweet um, to the top of the space with the afterburner um, marks. And so you can see, like, I am definitely in need of uh, a new one. But yeah, oh, whether man. it's new ports or, you know, one thing that I'm worried about, though, is this chip shortage. And, you know, if the yeah. iPhone uh, 13 models are having, and granted, they may not use the same components, but if the iPhones are having shortages, do you think that's going to impact the MacBook Pro? Well, chip? but no, because think about it. Think about what we've heard specifically today was it was, you know, the wireless stuff from Broadcom, whatever that chip was that Texas Instruments is yeah. doing. If we're talking about the M1X, yeah. then we're talking about something that has that Apple's designed itself, and we know that Apple does their their contracts yeah, years chip, down the road. You know, like there's multiple chips. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. So you're not just talking about the, the, the M1. 
Like the yeah. M1X may be fine. I'm talking about the other components and going especially into the holiday season, like this could really have a big damper on all sorts of different electronic devices. I mean, you know, I can't imagine what Black Friday is going to look like this year. Oh, um, I've, I, funny enough, have heard a lot about that. By the our friend of the show, uh, Chris Mims, has a great book out about the supply chain that I've been reading that's very good. Oh, and in okay. fact, I, w- I want to have him on um, uh, one of these weeks um, to talk cool. about the book once I get done with it. Um, but also, I met, you know, as you do now when you have kids in school, I, I met um, a father of a friend of Max's that does supply chain stuff literally for um, a, a fashion brand, a, a big name fashion brand that you would know. Um, and he was giving me the lowdown on stuff like that. And he, he was saying stuff like, uh, yeah, if you're thinking of buying any presents for people, you might want to buy them now and keep them on your shelf. Yes. Because if you think you're going to be able to do what you did last year, which is, Oh my God, it's two days before Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever, what have you. And you think you're going to be able to get that present. Oh no, you could be three weeks ahead of time and you won't be able to get it to get it to your person. I will say just like the, the supply chain totally separate from the chip shortage is so slow. Um, you know, I, I've, I've ordered some furniture and stuff like that. And it's like literally taking like a month and a half. And what I understand, I mean, there are, um, container ships that are 45 that are backed up in the port of LA um, going on in the port of Oakland, which is, you know, where I live. And, um, there's just, and there's weird things going on with gas, you know, in the UK and the the Brexit thing is taking effect. Right. There's a lot of macroeconomic stuff that's, you know, taking hold. One thought that I had was that there were some things that, that were affected by COVID and the pandemic, like almost immediately. You know, there was a bunch of like reverberations that occurred throughout society over the first eight to 12 months. And I feel like now we're starting to see like the low, almost like aftershock rumblings in the supply chain and elsewhere, you know, whether it's the, the great, um, resignation or other things with jobs or fuel shortages, like there's some weird stuff that feels like it's still very much pandemic related that we're still working through the system. Not only that, I would say conversely, everybody because I remember doing shows, um, you know, in March and April of last year and being like, Oh my God, I feel like the economy is really screwed. How come no one's panicking? And then Mm. the fact that the stock market basically made it all back and that, that, you know, um, unemployment while not back to where it was really bounced back. Right. So everyone thought, Oh man, we are, yeah. But what if the reality is, is you can't have a crazy impact like a frigging global pandemic and not have, uh, you know, deep, deep changes or impacts on society. And so what if we got head faked and what if everyone's like, oh, well, we'll just go back. And what, what what's actually happening is now we're seeing the deep yeah, that, impacts that's of exactly like what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And this holiday season may be the first where we're really seeing like a real post pandemic kind of, you know, consequence circumstance, just, I don't know. Um, it feels like the things that some of us didn't really maybe experience like, you know, firsthand and supply chain stuff is really making it through. Like I may, I'll put it another way. If the supply chain were sort of shored up for the next two to three years, right. At any given point that the, pandemic is actually a body blow to all of that preparation and that things are, you know, kind of way off kilter because so many things are, I just, I I can only uh, envision kind of like an earthquake, you know, causing these rippling effects um, in all these different, I don't know, ways. And so that's, that's what we're saying. 
you know, let's let me let me work on getting Chris Mims yeah, for next Wednesday uh, or, to his um his book yeah. if you guys want to check it out. I, I do highly recommend it because it literally I, I, I just I um just bought a copy for my dad because mm. it's a very dad book where it's like <laughs> he goes to Vietnam, he follows a USB charger every step of the way till it gets to your front door, right? So I'm only at the point where he's on a ship with, you know, this this bosun's mate or whatever that, like, you know, spends his whole life on the seas, yeah. you know, in these big... And, like, so he takes you around it step by step. Like, here's how containers work. Here's how, here's how they're loaded on the ships. Here's how ships are... Um, so big that they that no storm can really affect them anymore, and 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 now the the, the ships are so big that they can't get through the Panama Canal, and it's on and <laughs> yeah, on. Like, yeah, exactly. Right. So I haven't even gotten to the when it arrives in the port of Oakland, wow. and then it gets put on a you know. So like, yeah, if if you want that sort of dad so level, how physical packet switching works in the 21st century. You know how dads love to know that sort of trivia. <laughs> like this is, this is a great dad book. So yeah, I, um, we'll, we'll I'll, it, Chris is a good friend. So we'll, time we'll for the <laughs> there have been book shortages recently. Have you heard that? What? Yeah, I didn't, freeze? you know what? I haven't read the articles, but, um, there have been problems with, um, there's, there's been, shortages in the publishing industry. So I, wow. since I haven't read the articles, I can't speak to it. But. You know what I really wonder, sorry, this will be the last point is just how this affects things on a macroeconomic scale. We're seeing a lot of inflation, like insane amounts. Gas is up over a dollar from a year ago, just prices across the board. You know, a burger costs 20 bucks now, wherever you go. Um, I really wonder how that's, you know, typically from a supply and demand perspective, if you have less supply, prices are going to go up. So if there are all those shortages, are prices going to continue to rise? you know, relative to everything else. And, and especially with people not going back to work, I don't know how people are going to like afford to live. So there's this big, I don't know, looming feels like a crisis coming up in like the next six months that, uh, not to end on a dire note, but, uh, gives you some pause. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not that scared about that. This, this calls for having, um, uh, Noah Smith back on, oh, you know, you get yeah. an, an actual, <laughs> an actual economist. Yeah. Um, one, one thing that I, I remember someone said, about a year ago, and then and then let's let's go ahead and end and, it. But um, to, to the to the notion, I don't I don't know if there's going to be a problem with inflation and things like that. But one of the things that really resonated with me is about a year ago, someone said to me, "If you got laid off last year when the pandemic hit, and you were out of work for three months, six months, or whatever." One of the things that you've learned as you've seen the stock market come back and basically a certain part of society basically continue as if nothing happened is that your job does not matter to society. Yes. And so the reason that's resonated with me is when I see these things like people leaving the workforce or or you know companies can't find people to hire for, you know, fast food joints or whatever is that I think one of the things in the same way that when the housing bubble happened and there was an entire generation mm. the millennials that were like taught about like you know this money stuff is fucked. Yeah. Like there's a certain segment of the population that is like, you know what? That like that lifestyle. It's not fuck it. It's not I'm gonna like you know go to a you know a, a commune or something and and, <laughs> okay. and drop out of society. It's more. I actually think this is that's a dead end. Hmm. Society didn't need me. I need to do something else that is valuable. Hmm. Do you yeah, see what I'm what, saying? I, I do, but what is it? I, like, I there's a lot. I don't of know, but into, like the creator economy for sure. But that many people? for sure. But but also I th I I and again Noah would be someone that could yeah. 
comment on this more. Um, I, I kind of feel like that that's might be what's happening is there are millions of people that were like, okay, I, I couldn't work for six months. I'm going to go back now to that hotel job that pays barely over minimum wage. I've been seeing that. Like now that I'm in Vermont, you know, the first place that I got to in Medford, Massachusetts, like there was like two people working this restaurant where normally there'd be like 10 or 12. And the first thing they said was, I'm sorry, we're short staffed. It's going to be a really long wait before you get your food. And we're like, okay, well, we're traveling. We have no place else to go. Fine. And then now I'm staying at this lodge in Vermont. Same thing. There are like two grounds people for this enormous place that we're staying in because none of the people want to come back. So I know these are just like anecdotal stories, but I totally resonate with what you're saying because as I'm going out in the world, I'm experiencing that and I just don't know where people are. Well, I'm trying to be hopeful about it in the sense that for these people, if you are someone like that, mm-hmm. um, that you're like, you know what, this this was a dead end. I'm going to do something else, and I don't know what the something else is, and it's going to be different for every other person. But I, it, the optimistic part about it is, is that people are this thing shocked them out of like being on that treadmill of a dead end job or a dead end lifestyle or, and so like hopefully all of these people can find something that not only will be better for them, but then better for all of society because it is going to create something new and something else. Yeah. I mean, who or what will end up doing this work in these places that still need, you know, labor of some sort. I mean, this is, I feel like this is where automation is going to go because you can't find enough people. And okay. But then, then being optimistic is we've been afraid of robots stealing everyone's jobs. So like, what if, what if people jumped before they got pushed off of the, the plank on the pirate ship? And, and so that's the optimistic thing is that now this clears the space. And by the way, and I swear to God, we're done after this. (laughs) Like that is the story. I keep talking about toast as being my favorite, um, um, survivor story, startup story of um, the thing that I've heard is that you know restaurants during the pandemic had to pivot hard uh, because they couldn't have in restaurant dining, and they all pivoted towards um, uh, pickup and delivery and things like that, and that's made them all embrace software and automation, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it okay. was like. Again, this is that in action where okay, the delivery person people and the the wait staff are not coming back, but then it's coincidental that also that entire industry is shifting towards automation and software and and things like yeah, that. Okay, so I'm I'm with you, and I really hope people are. I know when they say like you know find your passion, you know only risk people can say that. But if that is true, and if people are moving into the types of work and careers and lifestyles that they really want. And they'd been putting it off because like, I'll do it next year and it never happens. Great. Awesome. You know, what I will say, or what I've noticed, um, you know, is that the creator economy really is not paying the bills for anybody. I mean, you talked about it today with save, say that for next time. Uh, Yeah. Let's talk about that next time. Yeah. There's that, there's the Twitter thing with spaces there, you know, you know what? Let's get Noah on. Let's talk about the economics of this new world and the great resignation. And let's like figure this out. Not next week. And we'll get, a lot of events we'll get Chris we'll the week after that. And, and Chris we'll get Chris yeah. on to talk mm-hmm. about the supply chain. Okay. Great. We've got our marching orders and Chris, at some point we will get to, that was a great point that we should have thought about, which is the creator economy being a haves and have nots and 1% sort of thing. Yeah. Income or inequality in the creator uh, space. Yeah. Okay. 
Everyone, we love you. Chris, um, enjoy enjoy the East Coast. Thank you. I, I am, and I love the foliage. So thanks, everybody, for joining us for another episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience. We will be back here next week. Hopefully, Brian and I will have ordered our new MacBook M1Xs, and they'll come in time for the holidays, if not immediately. Anyways, we will be here then. Talk to you later. Bye, everybody.